0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 26.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux.
0: All right, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 26, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Wow, we made it over the hump of 25. We're on 26 now. This is pretty good. I like this. I promise I won't say anything more about milestones until we're on our way to 50, so got to put our nose to the grindstone and get working. Here we go. So today on Working Class Audio, I've got uh, Mr. John Sickett, who's a producer, recording engineer, and mixer, and we talked to John from uh, New York. Over Skype, John's worked with some super cool people, and maybe you know his work with Sonic Youth or Fish, uh, Yola Tango, Dave Matthews Band, Blonde Redhead, Fountains of Wayne, uh, Peter Murphy, or possibly Freddie Johnston or the X-Cops, or X-Cops, not the X-Cops. So John's going to come on today and have a chat with us about uh, the realities of the recording world, just like we always do. Hope you like that. Also got a little report from The Road. I got in the car the other day. I was on my way to a session and uh, I had some thoughts and I thought, you know, if I wait to express these thoughts until I get home to my studio, then uh, I'm probably going to forget half of what I want to say. So I just set the phone up and put some audio recorder on my phone and just started rambling. So I'm going to bring that to you in a sec, a little uh, working class audio report from the road, if you will. Not a new feature, just you know, just some random thoughts I thought I would share with you. And speaking of uh, the road and driving around, I just want to say a special shout-out to uh, uh, our friend and listener in uh, Berlin, Germany. Theo, if you're listening and you're driving around doing your job and listening to the podcast, I just want to say thanks, man. Thanks for listening and, and spending all that time. I, I know that uh, you enjoy it. I hope we keep you entertained while you drive around. And in uh, basically, Theo sent me a message on Facebook. So cheers to you, Theo. Thanks for listening and uh, continue to listen and continue to spread the word. And I hope, uh, hope you're driving safe today. Be careful out there. That's it. We've got uh, John on. Hello to Theo. We've got a report from the road. And uh, yeah, let's get down to it. Let me get you the report from the road here and excuse the audio quality because it came off my phone. And so I'm just going to, you know... I know, it's what we recording engineers do. We preface everything by saying, I know it's going to sound crappy, but, you know, anyways, here's a report from the road, and then we'll get to our interview with John Sickett here on Working Class Audio. Just after 8.30 in the morning, just dropped the kids off at school, and I'm headed off to a session at SharkBite Studios in Oakland. I don't know, I thought I would uh, chime in here and because this is fresh in my mind and I couldn't really wait to get into my room at home and record it properly. So I'm on the voice recorder here thing on the uh, phone. You know, the clients, I told them I'd be there probably by 9.30. You know, I wanna to try to get there as early as I can. So today's session that I'm doing is, um, it's going to be two acoustic guitars, upright bass and violin, possibly two violins, we'll find out when I get there. So I think my question to the audience really is, is preparation. You know, um, I'm kind of curious what you all do for preparation. I know that last night what I did was create a Pro Tools session for today, put it in Dropbox just as a template, no audio. And of course, what always gets screwed up is the I.O. I've got an Apollo at home, but the system I'm going to at SharkBite is uh, just kind of a traditional uh, 24 in, 24 out HD rig, uh, Pro Tools HD rig. So the I.O. always gets a little goofy. So I didn't put a lot of effort into the I.O. I only put the effort into the bus routing. Also, what's key for me is I'm a big Google Doc fan. What I do is, I go ahead and I, uh, I create a Google Doc that labels out, you know, that mimics a sheet that they have at the studio that actually Scott Evans, uh, uh, previous WCA guest Scott Evans had created. So the sheet has instrument, uh, the wall number, in other words the mic panel number that you're plugging the mic into. The, the track number in Pro Tools, uh, the preamp number on the board, it's a Trident TSM, I think it's from 1978. So I laid out all that stuff in a Google Doc so that when I'm there, I can pull out my phone and I, I didn't hire an assistant today, I'm just writing solo because it's only uh, four people and the instrumentation is very simple. So. That's the preparation I did. Google Doc, pre, pre-prepped the uh, Pro Tools session. Technically, it's it's really only going to be, I think, seven tracks. Uh, upright bass is going to be, uh, I always put a, a variety of mics. I put a, a bridge mic, an F-hole mic, a neck, and if the guy has, or gal has a DI, I take the DI. On acoustic guitars, I'm just putting a single mic. I, I've kind of, sometimes I used to do more elaborate miking, but I found that you know, if I just keep it simple, it get, we get the session going faster, it sounds great, and you kind of put all that together. I mean, I would rather use a simple miking, not really deal with, not deal with any phase problems, and uh, get the session rolling fast. Because when I talked to the client yesterday on the phone, first thing out of his mouth was, what time do you think we'll start tracking? And you think, all right, well, if I do this miking, and I'm thinking, you know, in the seconds that I'm waiting to respond to his answer, I'm of course calculating, all right, single mic on the guitars, single mic on the uh, violin, and uh, combo on the on the bass. I thought, okay, I can get that up in an hour. He was pretty pleased to hear that I could get it get it going in an hour, and um, yeah, so preparation kind of curious what you all do as far as preparation now just we'll see if this makes it into the podcast but separate issue from that or not issue but separate question you know setup so today's setup as i said before two acoustic guitars upright bass and violin there's no vocals my plan is to and i know everybody's going to have their their comments about this, and I'll see if I can post some of the music afterwards so you can, you know, make your own assessment. But uh, KM KM184 because they don't there's no km 84s at the studio, so I'm just gonna go with KM184s. Go with KM184 on each of the guitars. I use KM184s on the bridge and the F hole, and what else? Use a 414 on the neck of the upright bass. There's a Demeter tube DI that we're going to use if the guy has a um, has a DI. And then on the, uh, the violin, I was contemplating whether or not I was going to use a ribbon mic or a tube condenser. So I've, I think what I'm, I'm going to try first, we'll see if it, it works, is a Lucas CS1 a tube condenser. And uh, uh, Furman headphone mixers uh, all the way around, I'll just do a basic mix in the um in the stereo, you know that's those Furman boxes are made up of a stereo feed and then four mono feed and i think what i'll do is i'll just put guitar guitar bass violin in each of the mono feeds and then a nice stereo mix in uh in the stereo part of that Furmin box along with you know a little bit of reverb and that's also where my talkback will will come from so, yeah, that's that's going to be the setup. It's a two-day session, and I think we're going to do seven songs today, maybe seven songs tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm mixing it. I haven't been told, and I haven't asked. I'm charging a day rate. There you go. That's it. At SharkBite Studios today. All right, that's the uh, working-class audio report from the road, if you will. All right. All right, there it is, my report from the road. On Working Class Audio, let's jump right into our interview with Mr. John Sickett. Take it away. How you doing, Matt? I'm good, man. Nice to meet you. Likewise. <laughs> so you've been in New York City, working in New York City as a recording engineer, producer, mixer, for around a little over 30 years is what I gather. Just about, yeah, probably
1: 25, about maybe 26, okay. right around there. My first internship, my first professional internship working at a at a real studio was at bearsville studios in 1986
0: hmm. I'll,
1: I'll give you a little background on myself my father was in the army we we moved around a lot my parents listened to a lot of music and i heard it you know sort of second hand i i guess i was a pat very passive listener and uh i remember one day my, my my parents were listening to a beach boys record and i remember one day asking my father hey how come the drums are coming out of one speaker and that some other music's coming out of the other. <laughs> My father was a, at that time he was a captain in the army, but he had a he had a really he still has a really good head on his shoulders. He said uh, well that's to give the illusion of stereo. I mean this was a long time ago. I'm not this is not a a quote, but he basically told me that was stereo and that was to give you a sense of space and that immediately interested me for some reason. I I just was like, wow, that's really cool, you know?
0: What a a great explanation for a parent to give a kid. Yeah, he came came right up with it,
1: (laughs) it seemed. And, uh, you know, until that time, the stereo always lived in my room, which I kind of resented, you know, (laughs) because there was this big... It it took up part of my room. And I remember looking at the controls all the time, and uh, this particular receiver... You could do the bass, you could adjust the bass on the left side and make it different from the bass on the right side and the treble and so forth. I just got kind of attracted to the, the knobs and the controls, I guess, you know. And then later on, I, I started to play music. Um, I was a keyboardist. I took myself really seriously, but <laughs> but I wasn't in any serious bands. I had, a, I had a Roland compact organ. That was really all I could afford at the time. I guess I was probably in like ninth or tenth grade. I always wanted this uh, synthesizer. R- Radio Shack sold a Moog synthesizer at this time. I remember. One Moog synthesizer, and I really, really wanted it badly, but it was four hundred and ninety nine dollars, and to me, that w- it might have been, you know, might as well have been a million dollars. But one day it was on sale for half price. I think I had I had most of that money saved up, so I grabbed it. You were a pizza boy. Uh, yeah, I was a pizza boy. Yes, exactly. For a very small chain in Color I live, I was living in Colorado at the time. A very small chain. Not not I I doubt if they're still in business. Yeah, and as a pizza boy, I listened to a lot of radio. For instance, I remember the first time I heard U2's war album. I pulled over. You know, like the sound of that record. And and it, you know, you gotta understand at this point, I, I was just really formulating my listening mind, I I I guess you could say. I didn't really I didn't know any terms, I knew nothing about recording, nothing. Mm-hmm. But I knew that, that that record sounded special. And it really jumped off off the rate out of the radio at me. How old were you then? I think I was 16 or 17.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My my girlfriend at the time was really into you too as well. You know, I was a little bit suspicious. <laughs> you know, I was more into Yes and Genesis and things like that and she was a bit more progressive and she actually went to that concert Uh, at Red Rocks that that they recorded the live record from, Under a Blood Red Sky. Uh She came back and she says, oh, my God, they were amazing and blah, blah, blah. And I started to look at their records and I saw this name, Steve Lillywhite, which was kind of, you know, ironic. And I was like, wow, he's a record producer. Wow. You know, and and then I, you know, I probably got a couple other albums that he had produced. And I noticed that whether I like the music or not, you know, I like the sound of the record. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I started to make an association in, in my mind about you know maybe a producer has something, has something to do with the sound of a record. you know at, at this time, getting information was really difficult. There was no internet, no bookstores carried recording books. they were you know very kind of a specialized thing. No, there were no news, there were no recording magazines on any of the newsstands by me you know i didn 't even know where to look.
0: That's just the way it was. Very limited information. Exactly. You were a keyboard player. You had your pizza boy job. I got uh, the synth. You know, I found,
1: I found out that I was really interested in the technical aspects of my gear. I really enjoyed creating sounds one at a time. You know, I, I just love fiddling. My parents, my, my, my father was still in the military. They went back to Germany and I headed to New York because my grandparents lived there. I didn't, it was time for me to go to college. I didn't want to go back to Germany because my choices would be really limited. And I wanted to go to recording school. Um, You know, I would see ads in the back of the comic books and the magazines that I read for these recording schools. And my parents were like, they weren't into it. You know, they were like, you know, they didn't take me seriously, you know, and I I get that. And they said, why don't you go to a four-year school? Then if you're still interested in, doing this afterwards we'll talk about it so i reluctantly agreed Mm -hmm. and i went to a small liberal liberal arts college uh, in upstate new york and i still played in bands as a keyboard player yeah and um this college eventually went to open a little fledgling video department i was a communications major and i immersed myself in that for a while because it was the only way that i could do you know sort of scratch that technical itch. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. now I was doing it with videotape. I did an eight track recording with a friend of mine. So, uh, it was all of a sudden it was my junior year and we had to do these internships. The closest thing that this, that the school offered was a radio station internship, you know, and that was going to be sort of like my default choice. And one of my instructors stopped me in the hallway one day and he said, you know, what, what's what are you gonna do for your junior internship? And I was like, I said, honestly, I'm not that thrilled with the choices. And he goes, oh, why? Why? You know, I said, well, I want to be a recording engineer. <laughs> I just came out of my mouth. And he goes, really? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, this is the first I've heard of it. I said, yeah, I know. He said, OK, well, if you can get an internship in a recording studio, we'll back you up. Wow. And I was like, great. You know, Bearsville was my first choice. It was it was only about 40 miles from me. You know, I knew I knew nothing about... You know, I had had been to New York City probably a dozen times, and it just seemed so mysterious to me at the time. I didn't know anybody in the music business. I didn't know anything. But I knew that Bearsville Studios was a cool studio. I was a big Todd Rundgren fan, and he was on the Bearsville label. And so I just went up there one day out of the blue, and I talked myself into being an intern there in the coming summer. Initially, I started out in the studio. I think I asked too many questions, though. And they relegated me to the shop, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know I did a lot of soldering. Um, I made MIDI cables. MIDI was kind of new at the time. You know, you know shops in those days they did a lot of fabrication themselves. You know, yeah. they would buy the the, the ends and the cable, and they would just make their own cables rather than buy them pre made. And they also made uh, – they were also working on a um, which has now become sort of a standard. They were working on a busable cue system. You know, so you could mix your own headphones and you couldn't really buy them off the shelf i think there was one company uh, that was making them at the time and they were in england and so they decided to build their own and it was a big undertaking it was a you know they custom made these stands out of wood and metal and in the bottom held a Halfler stereo amp and in the top held like a 10 or 12 one rack space uh, fostex mixer huh. you know and then we had to build these huge dl uh, cables, you know right, and so I got really good at pinning and soldering and malting. the uh, that was that technique was called malting, when you' you know when you make many many connections. it wasn't the most exciting thing to do, but at least I was still in the studio
0: when you got there and you and you got involved was it did it fulfill your expectations of of what it was, or were you like s- slightly disappointed or no, I was in no way disappointed i I mean
1: You know, at the time, um, I'll tell you how cutting-edge Bearsville was. There were only two SSLs in all of New York, and Bearsville had one. Hmm. You know, and that that was in their Studio B, which was a really, to this day, the best sounding control room I've ever worked in. And then in Studio A, they had a 40-input Neve 8088, and the live room was just, you know, you could drive – three 18-wheelers into the live room and and line them up next to each other. I mean, it was just a massive, massive place. And it was a residential studio. It was in a very picturesque uh, part of New York. You know, you live there and you work there. And I was like, this is great. But none of the assistants had time for me. You know, they were always so beleaguered. I remember asking um, one of the assistants, whose name was Mark McKenna, I said, can you just draw me a flowchart of how the microphone on the, on the studio floor comes into the console and then goes to the recorder and then back to the console. And so, you know, and he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and I said, you know, I just, just a rough flow chart, you know, I, I guess he assumed I knew that, but I didn't know anything about recording. You know, I didn't, I knew nothing and they knew that, <laughs> you know, the staff of the studio knew that. And that's why they put me in the shop, you know, because I, I knew nothing about recording I was to- a little bit outspoken, you know. I kept on pointing to the producer and saying, what's he doing? He's not doing anything, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: sure they love that. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it was to somebody – I mean I was essentially a guy who had read a few books, not any great technical books, mostly like coffee table recording books. And, you know, I was just full of questions and I didn't understand that, you know. I didn't really get that I was the lowest guy on the totem pole and that I had to just watch. And, you know, so they put me in the shop, which I, in retrospect, was a really good thing. Hmm. You know, to to learn about the fundamentals of wiring and that kind of stuff has helped me. That stayed with me my entire life.
0: Now, that, you know? your experience as an intern, has, has that given you any empathy towards interns in your professional life? Oh, with, without a doubt. Yeah.
1: I still believe that, you know, coming up through this, it's not, it's more difficult today than it was back then because there are fewer studios. But I still believe that going through the studio system, coming up that traditional way, is the best way. Mm-hmm. I, I just feel that you get exposed to every aspect of the music business and, you know, you work yourself up from a gopher, you know, to an assistant, you know, to a staff engineer. I just think that's the best way. You know, you interact with a lot of other en- engineers. You, you see how other people do things. You are on many different types of sessions with many different types of music. You know, that broad exposure and the long hours, to me, are, there's no substitute for that.
0: What are the critical pieces of information that you got out of Bearsville in that internship that, that still resonate with you today? Despite, you know, it's great to be enthusiastic,
1: but you've got to understand your place. And I, I didn't under I didn't understand that. You know, I didn't understand the concept of paying your dues. You know, the studio manager would constantly use that phrase with me and I and I didn't get it. Just didn't get it until until later. You know, be enthusiastic, be patient and be helpful. That's what I learned there. There are so many things to learn just an observation. You can observe how to be a good assistant. You can observe how to be a good engineer. You can observe how to communicate properly with musicians, which I think is a real art. With all the producers that I've worked with, many of them very great, it's the it's the communication with the artist, I think, is trumps the knowledge of any gear or any of that stuff. Making an artist feel comfortable and understanding what, they want and getting them to trust you i think is that's the prime objective for me mm-hmm. you know i i probably learned most of that from working with steve lowe white you know he's uh he's i was really shocked initially i mean i know we're probably getting ahead of ourselves here but that's okay um i i, I was really shocked about how non technical he was you know, like he didn't know much about what was in the racks. It's, that's OK. That was my job as an engineer. One time he said to me, never say the word milliseconds to me, John. <laughs> 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 Which I just thought, you know, OK, yeah, right. You know, either the delay sounds right or it doesn't, you know. <laughs> and And yeah, why not? You know and- what I mean? Like, like, you know, he operates totally on feel, totally on feel. And. You know, I've endeavored
0: to uh to emulate him in that in that respect. There definitely know? I think in the world of engineering, there definitely can be and I guess it, it, it depends on your role, if you're the dedicated engineer or the producer or the combo role. There are those that are far more technical and those that are far more feel-based. Yeah. And that's I guess it's up to the the individual to decide where you know, what works for them and how do they how well, of do they course. fit in? You have to be, you know, to, to, to do recording, you have to
1: understand signal flow. You know, you, you've got to know where the signal is at all times. But, you know, you don't have to lay that on the artist. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that a great engineer, no matter how technical they are, makes the process transparent, you know, and doesn't talk about technical stuff, you know, with, you know what I mean? Like, right. How does it sound? It sounds great. Great. How does it sound? It doesn't sound good. Okay, what do we need to do? You know, I, you know I, teach at, I teach at SAE part-time. One of my classes is in the third, third out of four modules, and they come in with all this jargon in their head. And I said, are you really going to turn to somebody, and, and a, a musician, and say... Would you like some time-based effects on your vocal?
0: (laughs) Like, what the heck does that mean? You know what I mean? Should we use some dynamics processing? (laughs) Yeah. You've got to
1: speak their language. They're the reason we're here. Right. Without them, what is a a recording console is just an inert machine without music to go through it.
0: Tell me a little bit more about teaching at SAE. uh, And, you know, I know we're kind of... You know, we're not going in a, we're going in a very non-linear. That's okay. We're using a DAW approach to our interview. As long as you're okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, Tell me about that.
1: SAE in New York opened up, uh, it was about six blocks from my house initially. And I just drove, I walked by there. I knew the guy who did all the wiring and I just dropped by there one day to see it. And I noticed they had a new NEV 88R, which impressed me. (laughs) I just left my resume there. And the, the, guy, the director at the time, his name was John Jansen, um, he was a guy that I really uh, still do respect, crack engineer, if there ever was one. I guess a couple of months later, he said, hey, how would you like to teach the mixing course? And I said, cool, you know, uh, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And uh, before I got into the business of recording, this is something I, we skipped over. When I first graduated from college... I thought I had an internship in the bag at Bearsville, but the guy who was supposed to give it to me got fired, and so I, I never, I didn't have that in anymore. So what I did was I actually taught public school for a year. I was a full-time substitute, like five-day-a-week substitute teacher hmm. in a district, and I enjoyed um, passing on knowledge to young people. You know, I found that very satisfying, very rewarding. Let's cut to twenty years later you know, hey, do you want to teach a mixing class? I was like, it it had an appeal to me. I had taught students before, and so I was comfortable standing in front of a, a room full of people and talking about this or that. And I, th- I felt like I had, you know, a lot to share. So that's what I did for the longest time. I taught only this one class, probably for about eight years. And in the and in the past two years, I've branched out and, and taught a couple other classes. I'm, I'm now teaching... What's called the Neve Practical, um, it's an advanced signal flow uh, course. I also teach the um, SSL um, Signal Flow course, and I also teach st- uh, session procedures, which is sort of the beginnings of you know becoming you know how to become an assistant engineer, what your duties are. Mm-hmm. that I teach one of those courses as well. It's still satisfying, you know it's still, it, it still feels really good when somebody comes back to me. And said, you know, I tried, I tried mixing without soloing anything, and it really worked out for me. You
0: know? <laughs> and, and I was like, great, you know, that's awesome. It feels good, you know, to pass something on. Do you feel the schools have taken the place of that traditional bringing up, coming up from the bottom sense of, uh, you know, the, the intern, the mentor, that type of relationship? Do you think that's where well, it's at these days? Well,
1: I'm going to say we,
0: <laughs> you know, at
1: SAE, we, we get you an internship. You know, I always tell people, you've got to get an internship. You know, you've got to do that. You know, you've got to, you've got to start at the bottom. And I also say, like, while you're here, record as many people as you possibly can. Once you're done with everything that's required of you, go on and, and, you know, do more. You know, once you, you've fulfilled the course, you know, advertise on Craigslist and be honest. Hey, I'm a student at a recording school. I'll record your demo for free. That's all you have to say. You know, you'll get a response. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it doesn't take place of it. Um, you know, personally, I feel had I gone through that course, I definitely would have been better prepared to work in a studio. You know, I'm, I, I think it's a pretty well if you apply yourself, as with anything, it's a very well-rounded Curriculum, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think it's good. I, it was, was even he, a
0: soldering part. <laughs> well, it's funny when you, when you talk about you know talking to one of the assistants saying, "Can you make me a flowchart?" I I think it would have been funny had they made you a picture of a totem pole and write, <laughs> you are here at the bottom. <laughs> right. There's your There's your flowchart. Your mouth should be closed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm to understand you eventually went to Manhattan and got a job at Sound on Sound. After I taught public school for about a full year, I, I ended up working
1: at Water Music Recorders in Hoboken, New Jersey. Oh, that was my first professional job, and that was a really great place for me to start. Let me tell you, the forty dollar an hour, twenty-two inch, twenty-four track was a very fierce, very competitive cross section of, of recording studios in the mid '80s because there were a lot, lots of people would cut their basics at someplace great and then do all their overdubs, you know, at a $40 an hour, two inch 24 track place or, or vice versa. You know, well, I mean, I did a lot of basic tracks, but I mean, it was just, it was the cheapest way in to the professional standard, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, two inch 24 track was, you know, arguably the, the standard. There was this one gentleman I worked with, his name was Chris Damy. He was in this band called the DBs. And he had worked with Scott Litt and Mitch Easter and so on. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from the uh, staff and other staff engineers at Water Music. I learned a lot from the owner. You know, when, when a band comes in with unrealistic expectations, with no outside engineer, no outside producer, and they've never heard themselves recorded before, that's a challenging, it's a challenging um, scenario. Yes, it is. I, it got to a point where in under 90 minutes, I would have quartet or quintet up and running from from the curb to hitting record in under 90 minutes. You know, I, I became really good at that. There, there, was, an out, there was a session with an out, outside engineer one time, and he also brought his own assistant. You know, I became like the, the sub-assistant. And uh, he says to me, hey, you know, Maybe I can get you a job where I work, and he worked at Sound On Sound. At you know, I was always interested in what was going on in New York. You know, anytime a, a, an engineer from a big studio in New York came and did a session, you know, at, at our place, he always did some kind of technique that I'd never seen or this or that. Remember, there was no YouTube or anything at this time. You know, you had to be in the room with somebody in order to see something happen. I just was like, wow. I know they do things differently in Manhattan. I really want to go and work in Manhattan, and so I did. I got a, I got a, I got a job at Sound On Sound. It's interesting.
0: Um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just oh, the, that time period is just. I'm sure if you're a much younger person and you and you haven't experienced life pre-internet, uh, it sounds so foreign. But it's interesting to think back in retrospect to that time period of. As you said, if you wanted to experience something, you had to be in the room and there was no YouTube. And it's amazing how how much we grasped, you know, grasped onto every little tidbit of information that we could get our hands on.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, just seeing a delay chart for the first time, Mm -hmm. I was like, I got to have that. You know, it was like goals finally got one and I photocopied it and I laminated it and I stuck it in my wallet, you know? And, you know, it was just, a, I just felt great, you know?
0: <laughs> so in, in how long did you spend in Hoboken at this studio? At Water Music? I think I was there from 1988 to like 1991. Wow. So you actually, there's some records you did in that time period. There's a lot of, I mean, you, at, You'd worked with Yola Tango by that point. Yes, yes I had.
1: One of the most significant records that I did there was the Freedy Johnston Can You Fly record. And that actually, that got written up by the Village Voice as the album of the year. And in in retrospect, one of the producers said to me, you know, John, you should have gotten production credit on this record. And that made me feel really good. You know, that record really helped me um, later on, when I when I met Butch Vig, I actually gave him that record because he was listening to some singer songwriter in the lounge one time, and I was I was like, wow, I got something that's you know in that you know genre that I think is really good. So I gave it to him. He didn't end up listening to it for, until a couple months later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, his wife was going through his luggage and found it, and she said, oh, I've heard about this record. It's supposed to be really good, and they listened to it like. From the very beginning. they didn't say a word. He told me when they heard, they listened to the whole record top to bottom and didn't say a word to each other. They just listened to every song and they were really taken by it. And um around the same time, Freddie Johnson got signed to Elektra. Telling the story out of order again. That's okay. But he he wanted to. He, you know, he loved the Nirvana record, and he said, "Wow, I, this guy Butch Vig, I'd really like to work with him. Even though we, I don't sound anything like Nirvana. I think it'd be a cool match." And Funnily enough, Butch Vig was like, I'd really like to work with this guy, but he probably thinks I only work on really heavy rock. When Free got signed to Elektra, they said, well, who do you want to produce your record? And he said, well, you know, ideally it'd be Butch Vig. And they said, well, we'll look into it. And he, he, you know, he he was like, sure. Yeah, I'd love to work with you. You know, like it was like, you know, even you didn't have to think about it. And then he said, uh, well, who, you know. Who should we get to engineer? Freedy said, well, John Sickett did the Can You Fly record. And he says, I know John Sickett. He gave me your record. You know, like, uh, yeah, let's get him. You know, so that's how that, that was. Came full circle for you. Yeah, it was the strangest thing. You know, I wasn't really looking to get a job out of it by giving him that record. I just was really proud of it. And, and I can't remember the singer-songwriter he was listening to. But I just felt like like Freedy, Freedy Johnson's record was like so good you know, as a singer songwriter record. And I was really proud of it. I tracked it, but I didn't get to mix it. And I was a little bit bummed out about that, but it came out great.
0: You know, obviously, you know, the artist, of course, we, we give credit to the artists for, for the, the work that they do. But in the case of the Freedy Johnston record, the, the Can You Fly record that Butch heard, what do you think? And also because, you know, it was written up, uh, what do you think it was about that record? In retrospect, if you look back at the process of making it, what was critical in getting that record to come out like it, it did? Was there the interaction between you two? Butch was really, I think, I think he was taken by Freedy's voice.
1: I mean, I always worked hard to get a, to get a good vocal sound with Freedy. You know, that was automatic for me. But I, but I just think that somehow, you know, and that record was done in pieces it wasn't done top to bottom in any great order. Like two songs were done, three songs were done. You know, it was done sort of piecemeal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just think we, ca- we captured the, the, the world-weary quality of, of him as an artist. You know, but, Butch was really, Butch is sort of attracted to sad, sad, <laughs> you know, sad things. You know, I guess, I guess when they're done well. Or, or, or people who are mel- melancholy and that kind of stuff. And I, I think we really got that, you know, on that record. You know, one of the songs is The Mortician's Daughter, you know. <laughs> I mean, the whole record is not, it's not, I don't want to say, it's somber, but it's not depressing. You, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? It's not that kind of a, it's not a depressing record, but it's on the somber side. I mean, a lot of the basic tracks were started by Freedy and his acoustic guitar and a click track. And then sometimes drums were overdubbed and this and that. But I always seemed to make, again, I didn't mix the record, but I I put a lot of focus on capturing, you know, Freedy and his guitar playing. I really, really worked hard to get a very cohesive sound with him to the point where I'd put up room mics. He'd be out in the uh, studio just sitting on a stool. You know, I'd have like a... U67 maybe on his vocal and maybe a 414 or a 450 AKG 451 on his acoustic guitar, and then off in the distance I'd put up a pair of um, uh, Neumann KM64s to catch the reverb in the room. And it wasn't a huge room; it's kind of about about as big as the room I'm in right now. Whether he was in a with a band or not, I, I strove to make him as big. And as you know, as large as possible, larger mm-hmm. than life. That was our that was our motto at Water Music. You know, it's only going to get smaller when it gets out of here. <laughs> so it's got to be bigger than life uh, <laughs> from the
0: get go. Does it frustrate you, or did did it then, and does it now frustrate you when you're the recording engineer and you don't end up mixing? It's a very good question. At the time, oh, it, it I couldn't stand it.
1: I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit right here that I I had a very poor attitude about it. I, I would be visibly disturbed by it to the point where my attitude a- affected the session negatively. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that I've had to work on, you know, since then. I'm okay with it now, <laughs> Yeah. you know, um, but, but at the time I didn't take that, that kind, you know, that very well, you know, I, I labored so hard and then all of a sudden somebody who I have no idea who they are is going to mix this. And that, you know, at the time, I, you know, I just I couldn't handle that, you know, and, and that hurt me. It hurt me. And I probably hurt the artist at, at, or the session at the time, because the, I remember that news came mid-session. You know, we were doing
0: hmm.
1: basic tracks or, you know, maybe a vocal overdub or something. God, God forbid a vocal overdub. But, you know, that just I, I couldn't at the time. I was just really immature. It didn't
0: jive with your vision of how it should have gone down.
1: No, it it didn't. But I mean, you know, I want to I got to tell you, I was wrong. (laughs) You know, I was wrong and I'm not I'm not afraid to say it. But, you know, if I could go back in time and change that, that's probably the one thing that I would how how I would take that. Because that that happened to me. You know, sometimes other staff engineers at Water Music would would be end up mixing something I recorded That didn't bother me quite as much as the tapes are being taken out of the studio and being taken someplace else to be done by somebody. You know, that was just weird to me, I guess. You know, I was really attached to the projects. You know, I I became very attached to them. You know, that that was a a detriment.
0: I I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of engineers kind of go through that. It's a you know it's like a, a stab in the heart. It's like, what do you mean you're taking it away and having somebody else do it? I'm part yeah. of this. I, I I've dealt with that in situations and yeah. It's... I mean initially you know and and
1: and I didn't really have anybody there to mentor me. You know there was a really high degree of esprit de corps at Water Music. You know we there was no job that we couldn't handle. We didn't have an automated console. You know we didn't have the newest tape machine or anything like that. But we were really proud of, you know, what came out of the studio. Yeah, what can, you know, what can I say? I mean, I mean uh, one of the staff engineers there was James McMillan. And one of the things he used to say is like, I'm a big fan of my own work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I used to try to be like him. You know, he was the chief engineer there at the time. And, I, you know, I, I was like, try to live up to that expectation. You know, I don't want to give advice, but yeah, you've got to learn to take that you know, with a smile on your face, you know, in the end, the
0: record came out great. And that's really what matters. And you, and you're still a part of that. So that's, that's the forest for the trees kind of thought. Exactly. Exactly. This Freedy Johnston record, was it Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the one with Butch that you didn't end up mixing? The one with Butch I ended up mixing. Oh, But, but the one,
1: the one that was the album of the year I didn't end up – the one that was done top
0: to bottom at Water Music, Okay, I didn't end up mixing. So the one at Water Music, did it end up leaving – the one that was tracked at Water Music, it wasn't mixed at Water Music?
1: No. no. Okay. It was mixed – I think it was mixed by this uh, Norwegian gentleman named Knut Bon, I think, at some place called the Science Lab, which was a really small artist-owned SSL studio in Manhattan –
0: Did it hurt anybody's pride if a project left there and didn't get finished there? You know, obviously, I mean, I think we wanted to track it,
1: overdub and mix it. You know, we had great reverb plates. The Richard Factor, the guy who invented the harmonizer, owned a portion of the studio. So we always had great, you know, we always had the latest Eventide harmonizers. (laughs) We just had a small 28 input API console. So we didn't have a lot of inputs you know the control room was pretty accurate but we didn't have automation and i think a lot of people you know especially at that time you know automation was a relatively new thing and ssl had it down you know their 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 automation system was bulletproof uh, you know in a way how could i argue you're taking and putting you know you're putting it on an automated console maybe i you know maybe a couple of those mixes on that record might've been manual mixes done at water music. You know, I got to look
0: at it, but I haven't looked at the record in, in quite a while, but, but the silver lining in the, in the, the irony in the whole thing is, is this record that you felt pained by that it didn't, that you didn't get to mix. You still had, you know, you know something, Matt, I'll tell you, I'll go, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll
1: one up you. I, I, Probably did, wasn't good. I, didn't, I don't think I would have done as good a job as the guy who mixed it in retrospect. You know, right. it was just at the time I felt like I had to do it. You, uh-huh. you know what I mean? And But I think the guy, the person uh, who ended up mixing it did a better job than I could have. Not even, wasn't re- necessarily because of the SSL. That person just had much more experience than
0: I did. But you still, even though it did pain you, I'm impressed by the fact that you still took that record and gave it to Butch. Well, I, I mean, at the end of the day, the music was great. Mm-hmm. I guess I had finally
1: let go of that. <laughs> and, you know, you know, I, I'm still a big fan of freedies And I think he's just a tremendous songwriter. And I think, I think he's very, you know, he has a unique voice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love, I love that record. You know, I love it. And then you ended up mixing the one that you did with Butch. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the ultimate payoff there. I don't even know if
1: I was even thinking about it at the time, but I'm just grateful I got to be involved in any of it.
0: <laughs> so, what's the takeaway from Butch Vig? What did what did you ultimately learn from him, and how did that how does that affect your work today? At the time. My editing, my two-inch razor blade editing skills went up
1: quite a bit working with Butch. Butch was fearless with tape edits. I know I've said this in a couple interviews, but, you know, he taught me the technique of how to bring, how to pull up a lazy snare drum hit by measuring the distance, you know, on the deck of the 24 track between, you know, you, you find a good feeling kick and snare. You find one good feeling kick and snare and you mark the bass drum. You mark the snare drum and you look at where those, you draw pencil lines on the top of the deck. Then, when you s- suspect that a snare drum is late, you edit the tape so much that you pull it up to that good feeling template. Wow. Makes
0: sense? Yes.
1: Yeah. And what do we call those? Shaves. Yeah, we call those shaves. And, you know, I remember doing probably about 40 of those in one song, you know, and being totally cool with it. At first, I was like, what are you going to do? You know, like, what? What? (laughs) He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm going to pull up the snare. I'm going to bring it in time. And I was like, huh? I want to say, though, I actually I think I brought something to the table uh, as well, because my time at Sound on Sound, I had I had assisted on a lot of live to two track jazz sessions where we were, you know, we were going live to dat, sometimes real, real, real to real. But. The, the main format was D-A-T at the time. The engineer would assemble at it, take sometimes. Or he, he would say, just play the intro and I'll cut it on, you know. And so I remember the first time I was working with Butch, where it was just me and Butch, you know, I was the engineer. We were at Power Station and we were recording Helmet, And um, they were trying to get this intro. And we were doing whole takes, and the intro was always not, not great. And I said, hey, guys, just do the intro. You know, I, I interjected, and I said, just do the intro. Don't worry about the rest of the song. Just do the intro. They did the intro one time, and I said, well, just cut this on. And he's like, oh, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, I, but after that, he really, you know, he taught me, the the real fine art of editing. You know, Hmm. he took my editing
0: skills definitely to to the next level, you know, and beyond. Interesting. What did you learn about uh, human interaction from Butch? About dealing with artists and dealing with those around you? Does Butch have a particular Jedi Master quality about him? Does he have a Jedi Master quality? You know, kind of a... You know... We would
1: goof a lot in the studio. I think to re- relieve our own tension, <laughs> you know, and and try to and try to make the sessions, you know, when you're, Sonic Youth sometimes can be very serious in the studio, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, they're a serious band, but they can be get a little be, get a little too serious sometimes in the studio, and and he, you know, he taught me to you know lighten up a little bit you know lighten up let's lighten up and see if the band lightens up you know what i mean mm-hmm. and um and, and and it became infectious you know it became infectious um it be- and then be- it became automatic after a while you know um mm-hmm. that was good yeah, he taught me a lot about timing he taught me how to like turn down the track if you turn the track way down a lot of times you can hear pitch and timing errors that you, you may not hear at a normal listening volume. Mm -hmm. You know, he taught me a lot about comping, you know, he, he's a very focused individual. You know, if he, he taught me how to be really objective as well. You know, like he, you know, if there was something he wanted, he would just go for it and he would not stop until he got it the way he wanted. He taught me how to be objective. Yeah. He taught me how to be more objective. He also taught me it's about the songs ultimately. At the time, he would get so many requests from tons and tons of bands and people, make me sound like Nirvana. And his answer was, write some catchy songs. You know, you you write some poppy, catchy songs like Nirvana does, you know, then maybe you have a shot. You know what I mean? That taught me, you know, that those songs are really melodic. You know, those songs are never mind just, they're just really melodic songs. You know, we're labeling it grunge or whatever, but it's really melodic pop songs at the end
0: of the day. With some distortion. Yeah, with a lot of distortion and double-tracked. <laughs> yeah. I'm just curious about the, the juxtaposition of Steve Lillywhite versus Butch Vig. And uh, there's a Vice interview from 2013 online where you, you really uh, hone in on... You, you, you mentioned, you say, I know it's going to offend my my indie <laughs> credibility here, but working with Steve Lillywhite was pretty important
1: oh without a doubt i i I mean what he taught me and this is something i really try to pass on to my my students you know at the time he he told me to look at recording just a completely different way in my mind and in a lot of other people's minds as well you were recording and then you were mixing you were recording or you were mixing you know it was like two different things Mm -hmm. and he said to me john you're always mixing he said that to me you're always mixing and at first, I didn't really get that. You know, well, what do you mean I'm always mixing? He's like, you're always mixing. You know, you always want to make it sound like you want it to sound in a mix. You know, you always want to make the, the, the rough balance in the board sound great and sound inspirational. That way, you're going to get a good performance out of anybody who's overdubbing. You're going to get a better performance, you know, out of anybody who's overdubbing to it. You know, don't look at it, uh, you know, as, as something, you know, it's special, you know, the balance is really, really important and it's special. You know, work on the balance, you know, put put some effort into that balance that you're going to overdub to, even if it's just a tambourine, you know, because eventually it's going to push the track into a more finished stratosphere. Every time we did an overdub on a song, we did a rough mix and we spent a little time on that rough mix. So and then we would take that rough mix and we would put it on its own dat. And and these days I put that rough mix in its own folder. And so all the rough mixes for that song are all in that folder. And you can put them all out and you can listen to the genesis of the song from the very first basic tracks rough mix, you know, up until the rough mix of the last overdub you did. And you can see the song is hopefully growing, you know, in a positive direction. And, also by doing a rough mix every time we did an overdub we were in fact rehearsing for the mix. Mm-hmm. So by the time when it came to do the mix that that tension that I used to feel or that notion of okay it's time to reinvent it was gone. You know it was diffused because it was just like oh yeah this goes here that goes there that's left this is right you know what i mean because mm-hmm. i had done it so many times he had sort of tricked me <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. but in a good way because i remember in the first couple of days of us working together he said yeah you know towards the end of this project we should be able to mix you know three or four songs a day and i was like what you know i mean i was used to spending one day on a mix you know yeah but he taught me that that you know that was possible you know if you do it, you know If you do 10 or 12 overdubs on a song, you've rough mixed it 10 or 12 times. It's just another mix. Just keep going. You know, his philosophy was a mix. In a mix, you should only have one decision, not a bunch of decisions. Any of those other decisions should have been already made. And what I mean by that is, let's say we were comping a saxophone, okay? So we'd have, let's say we had three or four takes of a sax and we're grabbing bits out of those three or four tracks and compiling it into a master track. Well, while he was comping the sax, he would say, why don't you set me up two or three nice stereo choruses, John? So I would do that. And then he would pick one and then he would comp the sax through that effect onto a stereo track. And so later on, I would just we would just push up two faders, pan them hard left and right, and there was the sax. It already had its sound on it. You follow me? I do. So he would teach you would teach me to make those production decisions as we were recording, not wait till the final end. You know to do that. You know that was before the Daw came out. But nowadays you can easily do that with with the advent of a Daw. You know we were working that way before uh, on reel to reel tape, basically. Yeah. Uh- you know, commit. You know, he would really teach me to commit, you know, commit the sound. If we were like doing an overdub and I put up some funky delay and the guitar player was playing along with it and sounded good, we would print it. Even if I was just doing something, you know, unconscious, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's really good. Print that. What's the takeaway with Steve as compared to Butch? Steve would always make it. I mean, I'm not saying Butch didn't strive for this, but, you know, to Steve, it was just so much about the artist, you know, I remember one time, this is a good story, I think. We had moved from Studio A at Bearsville to Studio C. And Studio C was a brand new studio. It had a brand new API console, but no one had worked on it yet. We were the first people. And we were doing, I think we were doing some guitar or saxophone overdubs with the Dave Matthews Band. I, I, could, I was just happened to look down on the console at the, por- at the portion where it says, it, it tells you the power supply status. And I saw that one leg was going dim, and all the peak lights started to come out on, on the console. And, and in this studio, studio C, at this time, there was no glass doors on the control room. We were all in one big room. And I said, uh, Hey, Steve, the console's going to crash. And he's like, What do you mean? I go, Look, I, I know the console's going down. You, you know, we got to stop recording here. So he got up, he walked out from behind the console, and he walked up to the artist and he said, You know, John's got something he's got to look at. Let's play a game of ping pong. There was a ping pong table always set up in the live room. And they started playing ping pong. And while they were playing ping pong, I pulled out every channel of the console. And I powered it back up again. And I slowly put each channel back in till I found the one that was dragging the whole console down. And I just left it out. And about 30 minutes later, we were up and running again. But he never told the the artist that there was a problem. That's one thing. He he was very clear with me. me. He goes, never tell the artist that there's a problem. If you tell the artist there's a problem, they may think that it's their fault. Mm. Picture this. You're doing an overdub in a studio, this big, expensive mic. You're the only person out there. And all of a sudden through the talkback, we got a problem. You know what I mean? Like, wow, that's really disconcerting. Yeah. You know, that's really, really disconcerting. And I get that. If you ask the Dave Matthews Band if the if the console ever they'll never they they won't be able to tell you because they never knew right you know he distracted them all the time you know and 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 I and and he was really really good at that they they were always you know he was so he's such an up person to begin with that you know his level of enthusiasm is like oh my god it's like it's like off the scale but you know he would just always have them playing ping pong or playing or, you know, let's go out to the shops or let's do this or let's do that. You know what I mean? Like they were never bored and never stuck anywhere. So for them, for me too, it was really fun. You know, it was a lot of fun. Even though we were laboring at making a great record, you never felt like you were laboring.
0: You know, I I can't help but... And maybe it's just me because I'm a parent of two boys, but the producer and the engineer in in the scenario you're describing, to me, it's almost like parenting, and it's almost like oh, without a doubt, keep the all right. One of the <laughs> parents is going to take the kids off. Hey, take take them out. I'm gonna I'm gonna go deal with the dead animal in the backyard or something.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a very good um, parallel.
0: Yeah, it's 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 amazing, and and. I, and I'm hesitant to bring it up because it's to say well artists are like children but it's not that we were dishonest it's
1: like what are they going to do about a broken console nothing so they don't need to know about it that's my problem you know what I mean mm-hmm. and but you know there's a there's a real you know and this I'm going to I'm going to say this a lot of times, engineers will be like, oh, this is broken. We can't use it." You know what I mean? They they, they make a big deal out of it when they shouldn't. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff should be downplayed. Bad mouthing the studio and stuff like that's really unprofessional to me. Mm-hmm. I'm an engineer. Let's let's come up with a workaround. That's part of my job description. You know right. what I mean? Like, let's get this done. Let's circumvent this, not to focus on what's a, a piece of equipment that might go south or something you know and if this was a brand new console you know it just had one funky module in it what i took away from that was not that the console went down it's how to handle something like that and i just thought that that was so eloquent and just so well done that really sums him up it's it's more about how he deals with people than his technical ex, you know expertise you mm-hmm. know it's like let's just get a good balance here you know, you don't have to talk about the specific, you know, don't mention milliseconds. Let's just get a good sounding <laughs> delay here. You know, <laughs>
0: you know, <laughs> so let, let me ask you this. All right. So that scenario with Dave Matthews and, and Lily White and yourself and, and really managing uh, the situation with the console, what does the producer engineer do in that, that case where you've got to play both roles and you've got to distract the artist and, and downplay the, the, the situation? Well, the, I mean, the first thing I would say is like, make sure you haven't, you know,
1: try not to do it all alone. My gosh, you know, it's like, you know, when I look back at my life, the highest points were interacting with other people. And, and I know there are probably a lot of Project Studio listeners out there. Get yourself an intern. Get yourself a buddy. You know, have somebody else there just so it's not all on you. I'd have, I'd, you know, I'd have to be in the situation by myself to kind of react. Do you, do you know what I mean, Matt? I'm not trying to avoid your no, no, no. I you know I your it. your question, but sometimes you've just got to admit what's going on. Just be positive about it. D- you know, don't steer the the whole session towards the fact that the console's broken and you can't record. You know, like, well, what can we do? Can we work on a part? that we've been trying to write or I I guess what he did, what he does is, you know, he keeps the spirit of the session high no matter what. That's what you've got to do in in that situation. You know, you've just got to keep this, you know, the spirit of the session high. If you're a one man show and the console's broken and that's really the reality of it, send them home. You know, don't have them hang around while something's broken. Otherwise, it'll infect the session you yeah. know so to speak look at what the what what did you get done today that was good talk about that you know play a rough mix back you know if you if you can't record hopefully you can still play a rough mix back from that you did earlier that day uh-huh. so go back and listen to that and Hopefully he did a good job and the take was good. And that that way, that'll be the last thing that people remember when they left the studio. Oh yeah, we got three or four great basic tracks today. Yeah, you know, And we would always listen to rough mixes together and he would play them for other people as well. And I used to say like, well, you, know, one, you know, he used to do that so often that one day I said to him, how come you're always playing rough mixes for everybody? And he looked at me straight in the face and he said, well, how am I going to know if it's any good? And I was like, whoa, did uh, you really say that? You know what I mean? But he meant uh, it. You yeah. know, he meant it. He would play rough mixes for people and see and watch their reaction. And if they reacted positively, he felt like he was on the right track. And, and that really made um, that demystified him a bit <laughs> for me. You know what I mean? Like, wow, it's okay to be a little bit. I don't want to say fearful. Vulnerable? Yeah. You know, I'm I'm like, wait a minute, you're the guy who produced Peter Gabriel standing out in the field, right? You know, like you said, like, how are you gonna know if it's any good? You know, but I was like, wow, this guy's human, he's vulnerable. And and I was like, okay, so it's okay to be that, but check yourself, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's okay to be vulnerable, but but don't keep it all to yourself, don't play it all in the same place and don't. You know, play it for other people who aren't so technical, because those are the people that are going to be buying the records, not other engineers, right? You know, not other producers. You know, play it for the public.
0: Because they're you always know. trying to get the records for free anyway. <laughs> 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 hey, but you, yeah, you-
1: exactly. I mean, you know, we make records for the public, not for ourselves. So, you know, he was demonstrating to me how he, you know, playing records for the public.
0: I, I want to shift gears just a bit and, and talk about surviving. Okay. Uh, are you surviving and have, has it been a struggle over the years with this, this choice of career?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not as busy as I was in the 90s. I mean, let's be honest. People bought more, much more music back then. Mm-hmm. You know, people paid for music you know, I, I don't like it when people steal music. You know, I, I can proudly say that all the music on my computer I've paid for and I'm happy to pay for it because I know that somebody like me labored on it. I know that some artist spent the money and made a a, a production out of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem paying for music. It's always been that way for me. I just think that what, you know, this whole deal like why I should be able to get it for free. Well, what gives you that right? You know, really? Just because you can. But, but you know, let's just talk about the reality of it. Um, you know, yeah, there are far less records sold than, than there were in the 90s. You know, I've had to take on a teaching job to survive. You know, I'm not as busy as I used to be. It's a, it's, it's a difficult business to be in. But at the end of the day, I love my job. And I don't think that everybody can say that,
0: yeah. you know.
1: And so, yes, it, it's difficult from time to time, but I would rather struggle with the job I love than sit at some other job and not love it, you, you know, and, and be sec- to be financially secure and not love my work. I don't know if that would be if I'd be true to myself, mm-hmm. you, you know, I, I don't know if that would be being true to myself. And I would rather struggle. And, um, you know, and, and love what I do at the end of the day.
0: It's It seems better to almost take a pay cut in exchange for happiness, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. On my way to work in Manhattan, I see a lot of people
0: in suits and briefcases,
1: and they don't look that psyched to go to work, you know? When somebody tells me we're going to record, I'm excited, man. I look forward to it,
0: mm-hmm. you know?
1: I look forward, even if it's the most rudimentary thing— I still get excited about it. It's still new to me, uh, in a sense. I still love to set up microphones. I still love to try different things. I don't feel like I've ever stopped learning, you know? I don't ever feel like I've had a plateau, and and that's good for me. I I oftentimes tell my students that this is really a two-way street, you know? Yeah, I'm telling you what I do every time I set up for a mix, but then I think to myself, Ooh, did you do that lately, John? <laughs> did you remember to start off with all the faders up, pan and mono, and and start your balance that way? Or you know, you know, oh yeah, I did. Well, no, but I didn't do it that time. You know, you know what I mean. So it's it's good for me to uh, to teach what I teach because it helps me practice what I do. Yeah, it's a two way street. It's totally a two way street. Yeah, I, I would have, Plus, I'm the young sure. kids are listening to all the hip stuff, man. So. That's true. i got to be in touch with them.
0: <laughs> I, I spent a chunk of time at a, at a school in San Francisco teaching, and what it helped me do is really own my own process and really explain my own process to myself because I, exactly. had, to, I had to reiterate it daily. That's what I was trying to say, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, but I, I hear what you're saying. What's, what's our takeaway from you about your experiences? You have this great skill— and you've been you've had some great successes with it and you've learned some great lessons so with regards to the skills that this this audio thing we do and the financial pitfalls that can that can come our way what in your life do you try to do to keep it together financially and keep recording i go out and see bands you know i talk to other musicians
1: I get, you know, I, I generate some business from, I guess, just people reaching out to me, you mm-hmm. know, flat out. You know, I really I really try to work on, you know, and this is a luxury. I mean, this is not a, advice to the beginner. Um, but nowadays I work on records that, uh, you know, music that I really love, something that I would actually listen to, you know, that I would go out and buy and listen to personally. That is not the luxury you will have when you're starting off. You know, you will have to probably work on a lot of projects that you're not that thrilled about. But I remember back during that time, I always said to myself, I'm going to, even if it's a heavy metal band that I may not be so into, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grow from this experience. You know, I'm going to try out some new technique, not at the band's expense, though. I'm going to learn from this of how to do whatever I'm doing better. Every recording is a learning, is a, is a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity to learn and for growth. You know, I still say that, but I, but I said it a lot to myself, you know, kind of as a mantra, because when I was a staff engineer at a $40 an hour 24 track place, you you, you didn't have a choice about what you got to work on you know if you were available you were doing that session you know you really had to think on your feet you know again a lot of bands don't know what they sound like until they're recorded and then you know some of them are surprised Mm -hmm. some of them are taken aback and some of them have unrealistic demands i've dealt with so many bands who said well you know a record's about an hour long should take me about an you know Two hours at the most to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Or no, <laughs> I mean I can't blame them for thinking that. Like, you know, that's sort of a logical thought to have. You may think that you can do it, you know, in that amount of time. And you know, for the for the person starting out, I, you know, it depends on your situation. Uh, I mean, if you're able to go to a recording school, you know, if I if I had the opportunity to go to a recording school, I would. But you know, you've got to make the most of that opportunity. I see so many people. Do just the bare minimum in recording school; they're not going to make it. You, you know what I mean? They're simply not going to make it. Yep. You have to go in, and you have to do all that you you possibly can. You have to do more than what's required of you. You know, the more of that you put in, the more you're going to get out of it. You know, I had a student several years ago. He was at, he was at school all the time. He was any room that was not occupied, any studio that he was in it. He was putting up people's tapes, putting up people's projects, mixing, experimenting, overdubbing. Within five years of his graduating, he got nominated for a Grammy or two uh, with Esperanza Spalding, and you know he's a prime example of somebody who came in and put forth more effort, you know, than was required of them. And then again, I still believe, it. you know, coming up through the studio system is the best way to learn this Mm -hmm. if you can possibly you know be an intern at a studio uh, i would strongly suggest doing that
0: yeah yeah it's it's amazing that what you can learn one-on-one with an individual seeing them work in person what that can do for you yeah Uh,
1: one of one of the things that i learned this is after when i got to sound on sound and i and i started working in manhattan There were a lot of different producers who would come in, a lot of different engineers, more so than water music. And I would really observe the way producers would talk to artists. And some of them were incredibly arrogant. You know, you you started not to see them as regularly. And those who were a a lot more humble were there all the time. And that was a big deal to me. Yes, we're in charge of all this gear. Yes, we have the know-how and everything. But... At the end of the day, we've got to make this a, a friendly, transparent experience for an artist. Uh, when an artist walks into a studio, big or small, a lot of times it can be very overwhelming to them. Here they're sharing this, their art with you. They may have never played it before anybody. So, you know, what's your, your, your facial expression behind the glass better be a positive one. You better not be on the phone when they are texting, uh, when they're singing their heart out. You know, you better be paying attention and responding and reacting. That's one thing, you know, I did a record a couple uh, maybe two years ago where I said no cell phones, no smartphones, no tablets, no laptops in the studio. I said that's something that I have seen. That's something that has poisoned the process. People distracting themselves on these, you know, social media and so forth. And not staying focused on the project. Why do that? You know, this is a special moment, a sacred moment. Everybody's getting together to, you know, put some music down for posterity. And you're texting, you know, really? Is, this, is it that boring here? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it's just like, it's something, I, I put my phone on vibrate, I put it away, you know, I've got voicemail. Be in the moment. And When you're in the studio, please be in the moment. Yeah. You know, yeah. if that's one thing you're going to get from me today, be in the moment. Be there. And if an artist sees that you're attentive and not distracted, they'll gravitate towards you. They will gravitate. That is attractive.
0: Yeah. Huh? I think that speaks to the concept of mindfulness and just being really, as you say, in the moment I mean, I I know I am guilty of of doing you know oh let's here let's take a photo and we'll post it and artists are doing that's a little it.
1: different that's a little if you include it you know everybody else in that moment mm-hmm. that's a little different don't you think but 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 having the your your cell phone or whatever right next to the console and then you know you're rolling and then you're down there texting away. <clears throat> I've done that. That's a disservice.
0: Yeah, but, I've done that, and, and and I try not to do that now. I try to look out the, the glass and make sure that when they look in and see my eyes, that we make eye contact, think. and that I give them the nod, like everything's going great. It's, you know, uh, when somebody says,
1: "How was that?" you better be you better be prepared to answer right then. Every second that goes by when you're trying to compose yourself, that's an eternity. You know what I mean? And to be able to look at them and say, that was great, or I think you should do it again. As long as you're there paying attention, they, they may trust you. You know, they may say, okay, okay, I see, you know. And if you're able to explain yourself, I find that, the you know, that's probably the most challenging thing. So look at artists in the artist in the eye and say, that was great and really mean it, you know, if you mean it. Or say, I think you could do it better, you know. I think you've got to do, you know that 's that moment right there, that, that split second
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: they 're looking to you and trusting you you better you know you better have your wits about you, you better know what you 're talking about yeah. <laughs> you can 't say i don 't know what do you think you know that 's like the worst response you can you can you know i 've seen so many people do that what what did you think about that you 're the guy you 're the producer. What did you think about it? Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean I definitely have uh I, I think early on when I was working on records, I didn't really want to work on that. I was just kind of doing a job. I think early on, I I don't think I took a a, a surly attitude per se, but I definitely, it felt more like a shift, you know, I'm checking right. in for my shift and, and I've, as I've gotten older, I, I've changed my perspective and I really try to, be there and be the supporter and be the, yes, that was great. You've got to
1: be, you know, you've got to be, that's how, that's how you get better in this business. And that's how when people walk away from the session and they have a great, you know, the record comes out great and it should be a great experience for them. Sure. There could be a lot of hard work,
0: you Mm -hmm. know,
1: but if it comes out great, great. You know what I mean? It's, it's all worth it. You know, you know, Dave Matthews told Fish, you know, they said, well, how's John singing? Dave Matthews like, hey, he's great to work with. You know, he didn't talk about all the microphones I pulled out or, you know, the limiters I brought or any of that stuff. You know, he's a great guy. Great to work with, you know, and and that's
0: what, you know, that got me to my next gig. Would you say that the to the student, because not only do you teach, but a lot of students do listen to the podcast Uh as well as professionals, you know, working Mm -hmm. professionals. It's. It seems like it's more important to pay more attention to your attitude and how you treat and deal with people than it is to get so wound up in the minutia of the equipment. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, if you know your studio
1: backwards and forwards, but the artist isn't comfortable, or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, you've, you've offended them somehow, or, you know, you've said something wrong or you 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 acted in a wrong way what difference does it make do you know what i mean if they if they are if they are put off or they feel like you're you're treating them in an unfriendly manner how are they going to perform well you know like i couldn't do it you know i couldn't i think singing is an incredibly difficult thing you know if if they're thinking about you know some kind of ism or i don't know what to call it you know you know your attitude or something you know, it's not going to come, it's not going to come out great. No, even if you've got the best drum sound or this or that, you know, it's like, it's something's going to, it's not going to be as good as it could have been. Uh So yeah, you know, dealing with people, you know,
0: remember, it's not about you, you know, it's just not about you at all. And just a a quick transition uh, before we (laughs) kind of wrap up, I do want to ask, do you maintain a, a personal studio to this day? I do. I do. Um,
1: it was something I was never really crazy about having, because I spent so much time in studios that I, I said to myself, "Why do I want to wake up and look at a console when, in just a couple of hours, I'll be looking at a console for 12 hours?" But then the business, you know, the industry changed, and so yes, I have my own studio in my apartment in Midtown Manhattan. I've got a uh, an older uh, design Pro Control. 24 fader control surface, and I use uh, Pro Tools HD native. Uh-huh. And I have a couple of outboard pieces, not not a lot. I've got I've got a couple of microphones. I I can do, you know, a vocal overdub, uh, a percussion overdub, a guitar overdub. But I don't do whole bands uh, at my place. I just do overdubs and mixing.
0: And then you track elsewhere, don't you? Yeah, mm. I track. The trend, the trend is, is that. Unfortunately, yeah. It's (laughs)
1: It's the the common denominator. I like, I like like being in studios. I really like being in studios. It, it still feels special to me, you know, to this day. I haven't really mastered, you know, I I still feel like I'm at home. And so I haven't, you know, if I've got something to do, there's too many distractions. It's, right. You know what I mean? and, and uh, Whereas if you're in a studio, you've just got to get it done. But uh, I'm getting better at that.
0: <laughs> and when it comes to mixing, are you an in-the-box, out-of-the-box, or hybrid type of fellow? I'm in-the-box, but I, I do use a couple of analog pieces of gear mm-hmm. uh, as,
1: a hardware, as hardware inserts. I, my mix, I ge- if I'm doing rock, I generally mix through a compressor. And I have an um, an ADR complex. It's a British compressor from the seventies. Um, that's a hardware piece I have. I have a Lexicon three hundred um, digital reverberator. That's a hardware piece I have. I have um, an Eventide DSP four thousand. Most of the hardware stuff is is just to do the recording, you know, not not really for mixing. I'm a, I, I really feel like in the past two years that plugins have come up to they're really good now mm-hmm. um, I have a universal audio um, I use a lot of universal audio plugins I use um, Sound Sound Soundradix Melda Productions Sonox mm-hmm. you know I didn't have a control surface for the longest time and that was a big thing for me that made mixing in the box much 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 more bearable you know, yeah. because I, I hated mousing one fader at a time. But now I have a 24 fader control surface. And so it feels it feels good to me. It feels, you know, like more like a console.
0: <laughs> yeah. And are are you one to chase the gear as far as gear lust, or do you try to keep a lid on it?
1: I Man, I used to I used to have a horrible problem with that. It's it's not. I mean, I like great gear. I like working on great consoles. I like good microphones. Don't get me wrong. It it's the mystique of it is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's uh, we've all seen and heard people get great results with very austere setups, and uh, you know, it's it's really about capturing the performance. You know, I try to practice good gain structure. And I try to teach that to my students, but I said, don't, don't waste time setting up at 1176 if somebody's singing, you know, is about to give you the take. Don't stop them to readjust the attack time or, you know, just record it flat. You know, just don't worry about it. You know, just get that performance. Don't make them wait on you. That's magic. Magic is going out the window, you know, if you're setting up a compressor. You know, if you're taking undue time to set up a compressor, you know, just just get it down. Well,
0: very cool, John. Thank you so much. All right, Matt. Have a great day, man. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, my friends, there it is. Another episode, another session done here at Working Class Audio. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, and as usual, spread the word there on Facebook and Twitter and uh, wherever else, whatever social media area you tend to hang out in. Hey, I noticed a few of you posting stuff on Reddit on our behalf. That's super cool. Thanks for doing that. Um, All right. We'll be back next week, as usual. Thanks for tuning in and uh, appreciate your time listening. All right. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware...